Welcome to the Rated Rabbi Sports Card Podcast, where sports cards and pop culture meet the 1984 All-Star Game. I am your host, Rabbi David Spinrad. This is episode 22. Feels like the first time we are going to highlight the 21 players in the 84 All-Star Game who were making their first All-Star Game appearance. You know, my wife caught me the other day. She's actually caught me, caught me several times. And you know what? I, I'm, I'm not ashamed at all. What she caught me doing, what she caught me listening to uh, the Rated Rabbi Sports Card Podcast, where sports cards and pop culture meet the 1984 All-Star Game. She said, sweetheart. I'm delighted that you play with your cards and that you're making little card buddies and even super happy that you're having fun with this little hobby podcast kind of thing you're doing in the basement. I'm super happy, but I think it's a tad bit narcissistic for you, for me, for you, she said, to be to be then watching and listening to yourself after you do your shows that I said, but sweetheart. Au contraire, mon frère. I finally found some hobby content that I like. It's my, it's my time period, nostalgia, actually talking about cards and telling stories through the cards. I love listening to hobby content, but I loathe hobby content that's only about the hobby and not about hobby game. Like, Enough with the fanatics and the Michael Rubin. Enough with the market. Enough with the Michigas. Talk about cards and tell us some stories about your cards. I love when you share with me why you collect, how you collect, what you collect. That's where the depths of relationships are built. That is actually what is salvatory to me about this hobby in a hard time. We can talk about something. Well, sometimes we can't talk at all. So let's not talk about business all the time. That's real world. This is escapism. So, sweetheart, I'm going to listen to the Rated Sports Card Podcast because, darn it, it makes me happy. If you're liking what I'm doing down here in the cave, give me a like, give me a comment, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, maybe subscribe. Best of all, tell a friend. And at your request, it would give me great pleasure to send you one for you. I'll send you two of these amazing Rated Rabbi Podcast stickers. What was that? Alfred E. Newman at the when you subscribe. Suitable for wrapping fish. <laughs> anyway, this is episode 22. Feels like the first time highlighting the 21 All-Stars making their first All-Star appearance the title of the episode is inspired by, of course, the great foreigner who was a KRQR writer, 97 staple of my house on days of yore. Feels like the first time appeared on their eponymously, <laughs> eponymously named 1977 release Foreigner. For those of you keeping score at home, that is the second consecutive episode when I have managed to shoehorn the word eponymous into the show. I used it to describe Eddie Murphy's 1982 comedy cassette. 
Feels Like the First Time was written by Mick Jones, our guitarist. And like I said, this stuff wasn't the deepest, but man, did it rock. Mick Jones had gone through a hard divorce. He had left England, headed to the United States, met a woman, fell in love. It wasn't love for the first time. He'd been in love before. He'd been married before. But this new woman captured his heart. And for Mick Jones, it felt like the first time. It felt like the very first time. Oh my gosh, Foreigner was huge in that little late 70s, early 80s window. One of my great memories of Foreigner, it is actually the very first cassette I ever purchased with my own hard-earned shekels, 1982, at the warehouse in Corda Madera. I got their greatest hits, Foreigner Records. I could never decide if it was Foreigner Records or Foreigner Records, but it was a jukebox on the front, so I'm going to say Foreigner Records. Uh, man, 10 tracks of just fire, just breathing fire, blue Mick Jones, oh my God, 10 for 10, batted a thousand. What'd you have? You had the rock ballad. I've been waiting for a girl like you. Come on, you know, you know, you still, if you were going by that, if there was such a thing as going by a song on the radio in 2023, you'd put it on and you would sing it. You would sing the chorus and so would I. How about uh, we'll close it out with a live version of Hot Blooded on Foreigner Records. Well, I'm... Hot-blooded, same thing, same thing. You're gonna roll down the window, you're gonna crack hot-blooded. But the song for me, I'm a sucker for songs with a narrative. Yeah, yeah, I love that jukebox here. Remember, he's wanting to be a jukebox here and there's a concert, but he can't get a ticket. It's a sold out show. Puts his ear to the wall and like a distant scream. Here's one guitar, just blows him away. Didn't something the very next day, he buys a beat up six string, didn't know how to play it, but he knew for sure, you know. And then, then this bunch of guitar stuff in there. And then the last part, remember how it's, it's all coming back. It's coming back home, remember? In a town without a name, in a heavy downpour, thought he passed his own shadow by the backstage door, like a ship to the past. Who knows who the rest of us are, but you remember that? It's like it's him, but he's in the future, looking back at the past, but he's still rocking hard. That was a great cassette purchase. Not my greatest cassette purchase of all time. That, of course, would have been March 1987. Watts Music, Grant Avenue, Novato, California, 1987. Spring of my junior year when in one single purchase, I purchased Beastie Boys License to Ill. And, and, and on the very same day, what else did I purchase? I purchased... Run DMC, Raisin Hell, There You See It. That is the original cassette purchased by me March 1987. What a day. Check this out. I listened to this so much on my 76 Olds Cutlass Salon that all the, all the writing rubbed off the cassette. For you listening, you're just seeing that clear plastic cassette and most of the writing, at least on one side, is all, all gone. Mm-hmm. Raisin Hell. Still good, by the way. 
So I'm going to share my celebrations. If I'm going to share those great moments in cassette buying history, I probably owe you the truth that there was a dark moment also in my music buying history. That would have been October 1989, sophomore year, UC Davis. Student loan disbursement. I'm feeling flush. I'm not a king, but on that day, I felt like the Duke rolled into the warehouse in Davis, California, UC Davis, sophomore year, feeling flush. And what did I go straight for on that very same day to counterbalance the greatness of the Beasties and Run DMC? Just only two years earlier, I went right up, paid full price. Bought the CDs of Paula Abdul, Forever Your Girl. And Millie Vanilli, girl, I miss you. I'll own it. I did that. Paula Abdul and Millie Vanilli, but come on. Remember that song? Paula Abdul had like the video, like an animated cartoon with the cat. Yay. Opposites attract. And you were singing Millie Vanilli. Everyone, no, no one wants to own Millie Vanilli in 2023, but you, if you were there, you were on it. Nobody was cooler. No, man, it was public enemy or nothing. It was not public. It was Guns N' Roses. No, you know what? We were together. We were hanging, and you were Millie, and I was Millie. Let's, let's just own it, baby. All right. So like I said, this is, feels like the first time, and the game is just about to start trotting out to the mound is this guy, the NL starter, one of those 20 first-timers, Expos right-hander Charlie Lee. Charlie Lee, born on Christmas Day 1950 in Orleans, France. One of three in the modern game, born in France. Bruce Bochy, future Hall of Fame manager of my beloved Giants. And the other one born in France, Jerry Curl Hall of Famer, shortstop Steve Jeltz. <laughs> anyway, Charlie Lee, born in France, raised in Tennessee, pitches seven years in show, 62 and 48, with a 3.54 ERA. Has a lot of highlights. 1981 game two of a doubleheader in September against the Giants. Throws a no-no. Has a no-no to his resume. 1983 he goes 16 and 11 with a 3.12. 1984 the All-Star game year goes 15 and 10 with a 2.89. The following year he wins 12 and we'll get to what happens after. No, actually that's not right. Prior to 82, 83, 84, 6, 11, 15, and, 10, and then 85, the wheels fall off. This we'll get to in a second. Lee is 13 and 4 at the break, gets the nod when Anduhar can't make the start either due to an injury or going to visit his grandfather. We'll never ever know. Has this amazing first half in the second half. Lee gets no run support, has a stretch where he, in five consecutive starts, he gets a total of five runs of support goes from 13 and 4 at break to 15 and 10 for the season towards the end montreal shuts him down his shoulder trouble they just think his arm is tired it might be some some tendonitis next year they come back they think it's tendonitis again he spring training he's just not right in 1985 turns out he has a torn rotator cuff and Charlie lee will go on to miss 1986 1987 he makes he misses 85. He misses 86. In 87, he makes but one start in September against the New York Mets, and he gets rough 
up one start, gives up one inning, gives up four earned runs, including a two-run homer to Daryl Strawberry. So this guy goes from all-star starter in 1984, starts to have a little shoulder problem, misses all of 85, misses all of 86, gets one start in 87, and then Montreal says, listen, we got to let Joe Charlie. Ends up catching on with the Minnesota Twins, 1988, gives 130 innings, gets hurt again, and then he is out of baseball. Let's run down those 21 Play making their first all-star appearance here. Just a moment. Let me get my list. Joining Charlie Lee as first-time all-stars in the American League, Mike Boddicker, pitcher, Baltimore Orioles. A's reliever, Bill Cottle. Al Davis from the Seattle Mariners. Richard Dotson, Chicago White Sox. Twins catcher, Dave Engel. Damaso Garcia and Alfredo Griffin. The double-play combo from the Toronto Blue Jays. 1984 Cy Young and MVP award winner Willie Hernandez. And finally from the L, a Donnie Ball game, Don Mattingly in his first All-Star game. In the National League, along with Lee, Bob Brenly, and Chili Davis, Giants catcher and center fielder, respectively. Catcher Jody Davis from the Chicago Cubs. The immortal Tony Wynn plays in her first All-Star game in 19. 19- 84, Al Holland, field closer for Giant, makes his first all-star game. Mike Marshall, Dodger first baseman. Jerry Mumphrey, this point, playing for the Houston Astros, was their rep in 84. Rafael Ramirez, the Dominican from the Atlanta Braves, the shortstop. Ryan Sandberg, their Hall of Famer, making his first all-star appearance in right field, NL outfield. Leading getter, who else but Daryl Strawberry. And finally, the 21st All-Star in his first All-Star game is this guy. Philly's second baseman, Juan Samuel. Juan Samuel actually had a pretty darn good career. Born in San Pedro de Macorís in 1960. If you want to revisit my dive into Dominican baseball, Go back to episode 7 while I celebrate the Dominican and Joaquin Anduar. Episode 7, you never know. Juan Samuel plays 16 seasons across seven teams. Most notably, he is a Philly, as pictured here, as well as a Dodger. Mostly a second baseman, but also is becomes a pretty darn good center fielder. Plays a corner field as well. Was a real speed-power combo, if you remember him. Coming up for his career, 161 home runs, 396 stolen bases, three-time All-Star. The Sporting News in 1984 names him the National League Rookie of the Year. What? You ask yourself, what about Dwight Gooden? Well, Sporting News split it up. Pitchers had their own award. Gooden, of course, wins the NL Rookie Pitcher of the Year, given Sporting News Juan Samuel takes the hitter. 1984, Sam West sets the rookie record for stolen bases, breaking Tim Raines' 71 when Samuel steals his 72nd base. So in the offseason, Juan Samuel is feeling pretty good. This is his XRC. I'm showing his 84 ups from my master set. His rookie card, though, is not till 85 because this one was not pack pulled. You know how I feel. 
1985 top Samuel gets his own highlight car actually for breaking that record. I don't have it, but I, I know it's out there. So he's feeling good about himself. He comes into 1985 going, you know, hey, I'm Juan Samuel. I have the single season record for stolen bases for a rookie. And then come into spring training, there's buzz. There's buzz. This future 80s icon, Vince Coleman, is catching everybody's attention. Vince Coleman could ball. Y'all remember Vince Coleman? Of course you do. If you like 80s baseball, you know Vince Coleman. Vince Coleman, my God, that guy could run. 1983 in the Sally League, the South Atlantic League, stole 148 bases in 113 games for making. Uh, and and you're not a great on-base guy, right? 148 stolen bases in 113 games. 84, he's up at AAA with the Louisville Redbirds. Steals 101. 85, he's feeling Frosty, it's his shot in the show. Just that loaded 85 St. Louis Cardinals team. Holy moly, that team was good. Oh, my God. Tommy Herr, Ozzie Smith, Terry Pendleton. Damn, that team was good, man. Willie McGee. Mm. The team rolls in the NL. They go to the, they go to the, uh, the NL. CS, they play against the Los Angeles Dodgers, right? And and Coleman is just, he's the spark plug table setter, top of the lineup, 1985 for the Cardinals rookie season. Plays in 151 games, steals 110 bases. Bear in mind, bear in mind, with those 151 games and 110 stolen bases, he steals 110 bases with a 320 on base percentage holy moly man like when you know the guy's gonna go and you just can't do a darn thing about it mm. only thing that could stop vince coleman was a tarp you remember that that tarp it had been raining that day they were putting the tarp on the field he was out there playing catch before game four at bush stadium game four against the Dodgers is standing kind of next to the tarp. It was automated and rolled over his foot and rolled up his leg. Remember Vince Carter? Vince Carter, not Vince Carter. Vince Coleman got run over by the tarp. Oh my God, that's an iconic '80s baseball moment. They think he's. They think he's gonna be. Okay. They take him to the hospital, right? No fractures. They think it's like a little sliver, like a little bone chip hurts, but they think he can play. He actually never returns to the postseason that year. Cardinals beat the Dodgers with Adam Gowan play and lose in seven games to the Kansas City Royals. Gotta think it would have been different with their with their speedster up on the top of the lineup. Who took his place? Well, this guy took his outfielder, Tito Landrum. I uh this is a gratuitous showing of his 85 car because I have about like a tiny little handful of autograph cards that a guy's random Giants games when I was a kid. I was never a, an autograph hound, but I, I got this one and <laughs> it's amazing. Ballpoint pen, can only use half of it because half of it's in the shadow. The autograph's great, but it's not a beauty. But nevertheless, <laughs> little 14 year old, you got Tito Landrum's autograph on his 85 tops. Sweet uni, though. I love that blue Cardinals color. All right, Tito Landrum, 
I want to show you a couple of more cards, and we're going to wrap this thing up. Let's get back to Vince Coleman. Coleman, of course, misses the rest of the postseason. Returns the next season, 1986. Pretty Vince Coleman still. The second season, he steals 107 bases. 1987, his third season, steals 109 bases. 1988, steals 81. 89, steals 65. And in 1990, he steals 77 bases. He is the only player to lead the league in stolen bases in his first six seasons in the big leagues. And only one of four players... To lead the league six times at all. Who are the other three? Of course, Ricky Henderson. You knew that one. But also Luis Aparicio and Mari Wills. Vince Coleman, Ricky Henderson, Mari Wills, Lou Brock are the only ones to ever steal 100. Coleman and Ricky are the only two to steal 100 bases three times in their career. And only Vince Coleman... Stole 100 bases three consecutive times, 1985, 1986, 1987. What's amazing about the 86 season is the guy hits 232. He has a 301 on this percentage, and he steals 107 bases. Let's look at a couple of cards. 1986 tops, that's his rookie card for reasons I have articulated earlier today 86 tops very ace looking we're in the junk like the junk wax swing year to me 85 86 of the swings because by 87 88 forget about it 86 tops his really i always kind of like that top half in black bottom half in white and then of course all right that's an awesome awesome art 1986 Fleer, super special star or superstar special. Terror on the paths. Vince Coleman, look at his taking a knee, holding up two bases. Oh my gosh, comes after that incredible rookie season. All right, what do we do today? Well, we goofed around. Told you I like listening to my own podcast. <laughs> I used the word eponymous for the second straight time. We remembered feels like the first time. Jukebox hero. I relived the highs and lows of set and CD buying story. We looked at Charlie Lee among the 21 playing in their first All-Star game. A short little digression upon digression into Juan Samuel, which of course only naturally led to Vince Coleman. We're going to end on this. I'm going to read the back of A6 Superstar Special because it's such an awesome card. Vince Coleman may make St. Louis Cardinals fans forget about Lou Brock, and that isn't easy to do considering that Brock is in the Hall of Fame. But Coleman, in just one season, came within eight stolen bases of breaking Brock's record of 118. There are many around the Cardinals who predict that once Coleman really learns about the major leagues and the various habits of its pitchers and pitchers, then all of the stolen base records ever set will belong to him before he finishes his career. Didn't quite work out that way, but nevertheless. He gave promise of this long before he arrived in St. Louis in April 1985 after the Cardinals brought him up from their farm club in Louisville, Kentucky. Here we go. In 1983, playing for Macon, he stole 145 bases, and that was the most ever in any league in any season. Until we meet again.
May you enjoy health and long life. So long for now.